let no one judge you in eating or in drinking or in respect of a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of what is to come, but the body of the Messiah. That's from the Institute for Scripture Research version. Let no one judge you in eating or in drinking or in respect of a festival or new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of what is to come. In other words, the Sabbaths have prophetic significance as well as spiritual significance in addition to what is, you might say, prophetic or looking to the future. The new moon of the seventh month, which is also a festival and a Sabbath called the Feast of Trumpets, has particular prophetic significance associated with the blowing of trumpets. And I explained, as I mentioned, in summary fashion, the prophetic significance of the first three occasions for the blowing of the trumpets. There were assembly, the beginning of a journey for the congregation and to to uh, give an alarm of war. Today I want to focus on the prophetic significance of the other four occasions on which the trumpets were to be blown, and that is rejoicing on holy days, on new moons, and upon the offering of sacrifices. First of all, let's look at how the trumpets blown for the times of rejoicing relate to prophecy. The first seven years of the life of Joash, one of the kings of Judah, is a living parable of certain aspects of God's plan. Jehu had been anointed by Elisha, a prophet of God and Israel, to execute God's vengeance on the house of Ahab. Ahab was one of the kings of Israel. And Jehu killed in in fulfilling that commission that he had been given by the prophet under God's direction, Jehu killed Ahaziah, the king of Judah, who was a grandson of Ahab. And so the king of Judah's mother, King Ahaziah's mother, whose name was Athaliah, usurped the throne of Judah upon the death of her son. Athaliah was the daughter of Ahab, who was a very wicked king, perhaps if not the most wicked king of Israel, he's certainly one of the most wicked of them. And Athaliah was the daughter of Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel had, been, had murdered many of the righteous people in Israel. They had killed many of the prophets of God and committed a number of other abominations, introduced Baal worship with its abominations and its even human sacrifices into Israel. So they were a very wicked pair, and this is why God had pronounced judgment on their house and their descendants. Athaliah, having usurped the throne of Judah, reigned over Judah for six years. 
But at the beginning of the seventh year, Jehoiada, the high priest, anointed her son Joash as king. Joash had been hidden in the temple all of those years because Athaliah had slain all of the royal seed, all of the legitimate heirs to the throne she had killed. And the only one that she had not killed was Joash because he had been hidden and she didn't know about his presence there in the temple. But at the beginning of the seventh year, Jehoiada the high priest anointed Joash as king of Judah. Now this is a type of Satan being displaced by Jesus Christ at the end of 6,000 years of misrule under Satan, who is the God of this world. And at the time of the coronation of Joash, the new king, who was to replace the illegitimate ruler, Athaliah, at the time of his coronation, there was the sound of trumpets and rejoicing. And so in 2 Kings chapter 11, beginning with verse 14, we read, When she looked, this is speaking of Athaliah, there was the king, Joash, who had just been anointed king, standing by a pillar according to custom, and the leaders and the trumpeters were by the king. And all the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets. So Athaliah tore her clothes and tried out, uh, cried out, Treason! Treason! And Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains of the hundreds, the officers of the army, and said to them, Take her outside under guard and slay with the sword whoever follows her. For the priest had said, Do not let her be killed in the house of the Lord. So they seized her, and she went by the way of the horse's entrance into the king's house, and there she was killed. Then Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord, the king, and the people that they should be the Lord's people, and also between the king and the people. And all the people of the land went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. They thoroughly broke in pieces the altars and images, killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars, and the priest appointed officers over the house of the Lord. Then he took the captains of hundreds of the bodyguards, the escorts, and all the people of the land, and they brought the king down from the house of the Lord and went by way of the gate of the escorts to the king's house. Then he sat on the throne of the kings. So all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet, for they had slain Athaliah with a sword in the king's house. And as we read in Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 2, when the righteous are in authority... The people rejoice, but when a wicked man rules, or in this case, a wicked woman rules, the people groan. So the wicked usurper, Athaliah, was removed at the end of six years, replaced by the rightful king of Judah, and the people rejoiced and blew trumpets on that occasion. And this, as I said, is typical of the coming of Jesus Christ, when he will, will replace Satan at the end of Satan's 6,000 years of misrule as the God of this world and the ruler of this evil world. The sound of trumpets singing and rejoicing will accompany Christ's reign over the earth. We read in Psalm 98, now, as was mentioned in the sermonette, there will be mourning at first, among some, 
at Christ's coming, those who oppose Christ, those who are resistant to God's rule will at first mourn at the coming of Christ. Even, we're told, the people of Judah will mourn temporarily, but others will rejoice, and the rejoicing will soon spread to all the earth. And this is reflected in this psalm, Psalm 98, beginning with verse 1. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. So this is a psalm looking forward to the time when Christ will have gained the victory over his enemies and taken the reins of rule over the earth. The Lord has made known his salvation, his righteousness. He has revealed in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Break forth in song, rejoice and sing praises. Sing to the Lord with the harp, the harp and the sound of a psalm. With trumpets and the sound of a horn. Shout joyfully before the Lord the King. Let the sea roar in all its fullness, the roar of the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap in their uh, clap their hands, let the hills be joyful together before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth with righteousness. He shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. So we see reflected in this psalm the rejoicing, the blowing of trumpets, the playing of mu musical instruments, the singing that will occur in uh, conjunction with the return of Jesus Christ. In a similar way, the sounding of the trumpets and rejoicing accompanied the anointing of Solomon, who, as we mentioned earlier, was in a previous sermon, was a type of Christ in certain respects as king over Israel. We read about Solomon's anointing in 1 Kings chapter 1, beginning with verse 39. Then Zadok the priest took a horn of oil from the tabernacle and anointed Solomon, and they blew the horn, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon, and all the people went up after him, and the people played the flutes and rejoiced with great joy, so that the earth seemed to split with their sound. When God delivered Judah and Jerusalem from a league of nations, that had assembled against them during the days of Jehoshaphat, one of the kings of Judah. The trumpets sounded and the people rejoiced upon being delivered from this huge army that had come against Judah. And it says in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, beginning with verse 27, Then they returned every man of Judah. This was after, the, after God had destroyed the foreign armies. They returned every man of Judah and Jerusalem with Jehoshaphat in front of them to go back to Jerusalem with joy. For the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. So they came to Jerusalem with stringed instruments and harps and trumpets to the, to the house of the Lord. And so again, all of these are typical of the end time intervention of Jesus Christ to save Israel and Jerusalem from their enemies because at the time of the end, the whole world is going to be gathered against Jerusalem. That is, armies from all over the world 
will be gathered against Jerusalem. Israel will have been attacked by uh, various nations and taken into captivity. And Judah also will have been taken captive by her enemies. And they will be gathered against Jerusalem to destroy Jerusalem and also to fight Christ. And Christ will intervene to save Israel, to save Judah, to save Jerusalem, and to save mankind from utter destruction, as was mentioned in the sermonette. It won't only be the deliverance for Israel and Judah and Jerusalem, but it will be deliverance for the entirety of mankind. Otherwise, if Christ does not intervene at that time, the whole world is going to go up in smoke. In Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord against Israel, thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes in the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. And the governors of Judah will say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the Lord of hosts their God. In that day I will make the governors of Judah like a firepan in the woodpile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left, but Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place. The Lord will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. So the first peoples to be saved from destruction at the time of the, Christ, the coming of Jesus Christ will be the people of Judah and Jerusalem. In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be in that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So God is going to destroy those armies that are coming against Jerusalem and Judah to destroy the nation and the city. In Zechariah 9 and verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, part of this was fulfilled at the time of Christ's earthly ministry when he entered Jerusalem prior to his crucifixion. But that was not the only fulfillment because Christ is coming again to Zion, to Jerusalem. The Jubilee year that God gave to Israel 
is a type of the millennium of God when the poor will be restored to their inheritance. And that includes Israel will be restored to its inheritance. In Leviticus chapter 25, verse 8, it says, You shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, and the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you 49 years. Then you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. You shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. Liberty is a primary theme for the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Atonement. By the way, these feast days are tied together inextricably. All of the fall festivals, actually all of festivals throughout the year are tied together very closely and have uh, significance in relation to one another as, as well as specific significance uh, and meaning for each individual feast, but especially the Feast of Trumpets and Atonement are linked together and are, let's say, a continuum of meaning having to do with the second coming of Jesus Christ and events which will happen at that time. The 10-day period, beginning with the Feast of Trumpets through Atonement, has long been understood by the Jews as a period of repentance, a repentance for self-examination, and a period of judgment. And that's precisely what it is prophetically. And so that 10-day period represents the judgment of God, the final judgment of God upon mankind and the earth, which will conclude with the putting away of Satan, which is part of what is symbolized by the Feast of Atonement. But it also symbolizes the liberation of mankind from oppression, from the oppression of Satan, from the oppression of Satan's minions, his agents, his tools, those rulers who have been deceived by Satan and will be deceived by Satan at the time of the end, who have oppressed mankind throughout the 6,000 years of man's bloody history. There will be a jubilee and it says, each of you will return to his possession. And each of you shall return to his family, just as Israel is going to return to their possessions after the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is symbolized and typified in the Jubilee and in other aspects of the festivals at this time of year. The word Jubilee in English is translated from Teruah, the Hebrew word, clamor, which means clamor, battle cry, or in this case, an acclamation of joy, especially associated with the blowing of trumpets. In every other case in the Old Testament where the word jubilee appears in English, it is translated from the Hebrew word yobel, 
which means the blast of a horn, especially the signal of the silver trumpets. So the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Atonement, the Jubilee are all tied in together prophetically and relate directly to the blowing of trumpets and what that signifies in terms of prophecy. Now, the word of the gospel is also spoken of metaphorically as the blowing of a trumpet. And in a sense, when the gospel is being preached, the same message of the blowing of the trumpets for the Jubilee is what is being expressed. It is a proclamation of a number of things, but among those is the proclaiming of deliverance and joy to the earth. Because what we proclaim in the gospel is the message of the kingdom of God. And looking forward to the kingdom of God is looking forward to a time of deliverance, of peace and of joy for mankind. In Luke chapter 4 and verse 16, we read about an episode in the life of Jesus. And it says, so he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty to those who are oppressed. Now, this is the very theme of the festivals that we're observing this fall, beginning with today, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And we're continuing that same work of proclaiming that same message today that Jesus Christ proclaimed during his ministry that the apostles were sent out to proclaim to the entire world and did in fact proclaim throughout the earth in the first century. That same message is to be proclaimed to the world today and it is a message of peace. It's a message of deliverance of liberation, of joy. Another occasion on which the trumpets were to be blown were to be on the appointed feasts of God in proclamation of God's holy day. In Psalm 81, beginning with verse 3, it says, Blow the trumpet at the time of the new moon, at the full moon on our solemn feast day. For this is a statute for Israel, a law for the God of Jacob. Under the Levitical priesthood, there was a literal blowing of trumpets on the holy days. But today there is, again, fulfillment in the spiritual sense, in the keeping of the holy days, and proclaiming the meaning of the holy days expressed in the gospel. On the occasions of the holy days, we are to have a sacred assembly, as we're instructed in God's word. And on the holy days, we explain what those days signify, why we're keeping them, 
what they represent spiritually and also prophetically. In Isaiah chapter 58, verse 1, it says, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. This is what the prophets were to do. This is also what God's ministers should do in any age. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgressions and the house of Jacob their sins. This is what we are to do in proclaiming the message of the gospel. We are to not only proclaim the message of the kingdom of God, but tell people how they can be a part of that kingdom, how they can fulfill their destiny. The reason for, God, for which God created them is a vital part of the gospel message, the, the message of salvation is an absolutely vital aspect of the preaching of the gospel. Because without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, without repentance, without people understanding how they must relate to God and his laws, there is no kingdom of God for mankind. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 2, we read, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, When I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman, when he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people. Blowing the trumpet is a, is, is a metaphor here for preaching the gospel and warning the people of what awaits them in the future if they repent or if they don't repent. And as it goes on to explain here, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. So the sound of the trumpet, the preaching of the gospel, is a message of repentance and a message of warning of what will occur if one does not repent and if individuals choose to disregard the message and they are caught, caught up in warfare and destruction, then their blood will be on their own heads. But it says in verse 5, if he heard the sound of the trumpet but did not take warning, his blood shall be upon himself, but he who takes warning will save his life. Yes, God will spare that person. And the Bible does speak of a place of, uh, where God will protect at least a part of the church during the tribulation. Not everybody is necessarily going to protect it, be protected because the Bible also speaks of many uh, faithful people dying leading up to the time of the, of the tribulation and in the tribulation itself. But people will have an opportunity to either be saved physically or if not physically, at least they will be in the resurrection. They will have salvation in that sense. They will not be cast into the lake of fire when all is said and done. And everyone who is going to be in God's kingdom ultimately will have to repent. Sooner or later, they're going to have to take heed to the message of the gospel and repent if they want 
to be in God's kingdom. In verse 6, it says, If the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet and the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So we know what's coming. We know what's coming because we understand, as was mentioned in the sermonette, what is portrayed in the meaning of these festivals. We understand what the Bible tells us is going to happen in the future. And it is our responsibility to warn others to get this message out to the world. Now, we're a very tiny, almost utterly and totally insignificant church, and we have no illusions about the impact of our message as it is being proclaimed at present. It's having almost no impact at all, but there are several hundred, several thousand people a year that do hear the message either through sermons that are available online or articles that are published and so forth. But nevertheless, whether it's just a few or many that hear, we have that responsibility and we intend to carry it out. And we will be judged by God for whether we do what we can with the resources we have or whether we just sit back and ignore our responsibility and don't do what God has commissioned us to do. And it's not just the ministry that is involved in this. The ministry may be the individuals who are publicly preaching the gospel, but every one of us is involved through our offerings, through our prayers, through our, the example we set in our individual lives, all of those things matter and they are significant and they are what God is looking at to judge us as to our faithfulness or lack of faithfulness. The trumpet proclaiming liberty on the year of Jubilee, as we mentioned, was blown on the Day of Atonement and that ended the 10-day period of mourning and repentance that began on trumpets. All of the feasts point in various ways to liberation and salvation for mankind. And the word of the gospel proclaims that message. In Isaiah 61, we read in verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. This is the scripture that Jesus was reading that we quoted earlier. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And it goes on to say here in Isaiah 61, in the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. And so the trumpets were blown 
on the holy days, and the people were to be instructed in what those holy days are about. And this is, this is what they are about. This is what we are to be proclaiming and preaching on the Feast of Trumpets, on the Feast of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles, and all of the feasts throughout the year have mess a, a message related to these realities of the gospel. Now, the sixth reason, or the sixth occasion, I might say, on which the trumpets were to be blown were at the time of the new moon. In God's calendar, the months begin with the new moon. It is a what's often referred to as a lunar solar calendar because the way the calendar is structured is that it takes into account both the movements of the moon around the earth as well as the earth around the sun and the relationship then of the moon and the sun in, in relation to the earth. And that's how time is counted in the calendar that God gave to us and that we see reflected in the scriptures. And each new moon begins a new month in the Hebrew calendar or the biblical calendar, the sacred calendar. Under the Levitical system, on each new moon, the silver trumpets were to be blown to mark the beginning of the month. And also on each new moon, a special national, not personal, but national sacrifice was offered, a public sacrifice, in addition to the usual daily sacrifices that were also public, by the way. But the new moons were not feast days. They were not holy days. They were not days upon which there was to be any commanded assembly. There was nothing special about the new moons other than the fact that they were the beginning of a new month and the month was marked by the offering of the sacrifice and the blowing of trumpets. There was no calling of a sacred assembly. There was no requirement to cease from one's labor on the new moon. That's not found in Scripture, and it's, it is well understood. If you study this subject as to how the Jews understood it, they understood that very clearly, even though they, it became a tradition later on in Jewish history to sort of make it a semi-holiday. Sometimes people did take off from work on the day of the new moon, but it was, it was nothing that was required. One new moon, however, each year has and did have, has had special significance. And that is the new moon of the seventh month. Because the new moon of the seventh month is not only the beginning of a month, but it is also a holy day. It is an annual Sabbath. It is a day on which one is required to cease from his usual labor and observe a sacred assembly and worship God on that day in a special way. Leviticus 23 and verse 24 says, Speak to the children of Israel, saying in the seventh month, 
On the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest and a memorial blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. This particular new moon, the new moon of the seventh month, pictures the ushering in not only of a new month and a new year, but also a new age, prophetically. The age of the millennium, as it's called, the thousand-year reign of Christ. Revelation 11 and verse 15 says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And 24 elders also sat before God on their thrones, fell on their faces, and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is, the one who was, and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. This is what we look forward to preeminently as we observe this festival, the new moon of the seventh month. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints. It's also the time of the resurrection, the first resurrection, the resurrection of the just, when they will receive their rewards in the kingdom of God. And those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. All of these things are signified by the new moon of the seventh month. And so it is a special blowing of trumpets, not only in recognition of the beginning of the month, it's also a holy day, and it has tremendous significance for us prophetically. The seventh occasion on which the trumpets were to be blown was the offering of sacrifices. Now, at the end of this age, there will be a great slaughter of those who adamantly oppose God. In Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 7, it says, Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests. Notice that what it's talking about here, it says, The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests, and it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. Now, what is this sacrifice that's being mentioned here? It goes on to say in verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men, 
because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuse. So here's another prophetic implication of the blowing of the trumpets in connection with the holy day, with the sacrifice that God has prepared for that day. Revelation 19, verse 11 says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. This is a portrayal of events that will occur on the fulfilling of what is pictured by the Feast of Trumpets in the days following. It says, Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying all the, to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth and their armies, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured with him, the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. These events will occur in conjunction with the sounding of the seventh or the last trumpet of Revelation. Before you shed too many tears over the deaths of these people, there are a few things to keep in mind. First of all, these armies will have rampaged over the face of the earth, slaughtering thousands, tens of thousands, millions of people, billions of people probably. They will be set to slaughter and kill each other and to literally annihilate all flesh from the face of the earth. They'll have that capability. Jesus Christ is intervening to put a stop, to put an end to this senseless madness and warfare that will have engulfed the entire world. These are people who are not prepared to mildly yield to Jesus Christ. They are there to fight Christ, if possible to overcome him, to keep him from establishing his rule on the earth. And they are going to be defeated in battle. 
Now, war is not pleasant. It's never pleasant. War is ugly. There's nothing glorious about war. It's always been ugly and violent, and it is something in which people die. And often, innocent people die. Actually, in World War II, there were, I forget the exact figures, but there were probably about twice as many non-combatants who died as there were actual combatants who died in that war. Many of the people who died were people who were simply minding their own business and were killed one way or another because of the war, either directly by being shot or run over by tanks or bombed or slaughtered in some other way or starved to death, were taken captive and made slaves of and killed in concentration camps and things of that kind. Jesus Christ is coming to fight. He's coming at the head of an army. He's coming to fight the armies of this earth who are out to destroy all mankind under Satan's deception and his malevolent rule. But this war is going to be the last war in which human beings will prevail. Well, they're not going to prevail. They'll prevail for a while, but in the end they will be destroyed. No longer will war be an option for the nations. Now, there will be Shortly after Christ established his, his kingdom, we read of another gathering of Gentile armies which will attack uh, Israel. They will be destroyed too. And then that will be an end to war on the earth. But this is part of what is indicated prophetically by the blowing of the trumpets which we read about in connection with this holy day. The birds of the heaven eating the flesh of vast numbers of those who will be slain in this war to bring an end to this evil age. On the other hand, those who are delivered from captivity will be brought to Jerusalem by the Gentiles as an offering. Remember, we're talking here about the blowing of trumpets in connection with the giving of sacrifices or offerings. So this is another prophetic series of events which is indicated by the blowing of trumpets. In Isaiah 66 and verse 20, it says, They will bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of all nations, on horses and in chariots and in leaders, on mules and on camels, to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering and a clean vessel into the house of the Lord. So here's another way in which the blowing of trumpets is prophetic. The sounding of the trumpet also is prophetic in, the connection, in its connection with the offering of sacrifices on the part of those who have accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and have repented of their sins. 
those who, you may not have thought of it this way, but when you go before God in prayer and you go to God through the blood of Jesus Christ, you are, you are in, a, in, a, in a sense, offering that as a sacrifice to God. Christ is offering, has offered himself as a sacrifice to God, and we, in turn, present that sacrifice to God as a means of our redemption, of our reconciliation to God. We are redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice of his flesh. It is because of that sacrifice that those who are resurrected at the time of the coming of Jesus Christ will be resurrected. Otherwise, salvation would not be possible. Salvation is possible only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Those who have accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in this age, who have repented of their sins, who have proven faithful to God, will be given their reward at the sounding of the last trumpet. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51, it says, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, last trumpet in that series of trumpets, we read about in Revelation. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Hades being the grave. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory over death for those who have been covered by Christ's sacrifice in this age will be at the time of the, of the blowing of that trumpet, the time of the coming of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Sleep is often used in the Bible as a metaphor for death because death is in some ways like a sleep. Those who have died in the faith are in their graves, asleep, so to speak, awaiting the coming of Jesus Christ. It says, This we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep or who are dead. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be 
with the Lord. The time of the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth before the second resurrection will be a time of sacrificing and rejoicing that is also connected with the sound of the trumpets. This is another aspect of what is prophesied or what is prophetically symbolized in the signal of the trumpets. The sacrifices and rejoicing that will occur during the millennial period. As we have discussed before, Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God metaphorically as a wedding feast. The feasts of God, especially the Day of Atonement, were occasions, I should say, except for the Day of Atonement, all of the feasts of God were occasions upon which peace offerings were consumed at festal meals under the sacrificial system of the Levitical priesthood. The people offered peace offerings on the occasions of the various festivals and consumed those festal meals, sacrificial meals in rejoicing on observing and celebrating the holy days. Just as a marriage feast in that culture was also an occasion of rejoicing and celebration. That's why a wedding feast is an apt analogy or metaphor for the kingdom of God. And so in the kingdom of God, there will be sacrificing the rejoicing that goes along with the kind of festal meals that were consumed by the people of Israel under the Levitical system. And for that matter, we generally also enjoy congregational meals or common meals often on the holy days within the church of God today. Or we may go out in groups to restaurants and rejoice together in that way. Matthew 22, verse 1, Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. These, this word is gamos in the Greek, and it could be just as well translated marriage feast, both verses 2 and 3. And they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding, to the wedding supper, the wedding feast. So note that there was a feast prepared. Oxen and fatted cattle had been killed for this occasion. Now in Isaiah chapter 25 and verse 6, we read a prophecy of the kingdom of God, the millennial feast of God. In this mountain, it says, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, 
a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. Now, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll find that <clears throat> on festival occasions, it was customary for the kings during the time that Israel had kings, it was customary for the kings to supply animals to be used as peace offerings for the feast to, to, uh, to provide food in celebration of the fe festivals. And these animals were offered as peace offerings. Peace offerings is a type of sacrifice. It was offered under the Levitical system. And the people also, those who were able, brought to Jerusalem their own animals to be offered as peace offerings. And then it was customary for not only the king and the rulers to provide animals to be shared among the people, but individuals themselves would, would often share their sacrifices, their peace offerings with their neighbors, with people who, had, who, who were not as well off and maybe didn't have cattle of their own they could sacrifice, or maybe did not have sheep, or maybe had very little. Not everybody had cattle and sheep. Many did, but not necessarily everyone. And so this is very similar to what we're told in this prophecy God is going to do for the people of the earth at the time God's kingdom rules the earth during the millennial period. God is going to make a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wine, wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. Wines on the lees simply refers to uh, wine, which I believe has been allowed the sediment to settle out of it. Verse 7 says, He will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. The no, no longer is mankind going to be blind to the truth. No longer are human beings around the world going to be worshiping dumb idols and false gods and following false traditions and false religions or and false politicians who lie to them and deceive them and who oppress them. The veil of deception is going to re be removed from their eyes because Christ will be there. Satan will have been removed and the truth will be taught by those servants of God who have been resurrected and also by the Levitical priesthood which will be reestablished at that time. And people will be taught the truth. They'll be taught who the real God is. They'll be taught the reality of why they exist and what their purpose is for their existence. And God is going to provide plenty and abundance for mankind. And it says, He will swallow up death forever. 
Those who are resurrected at the time of Christ's coming will never fear death because they will be immortal. And that same immortality will be offered to every human being. Those people, those armies that are slain at the time of Christ's coming will later on be resurrected to life again and they will be offered the opportunity to repent and to be included in the family of God. That won't spell the end for them, spell the end of them for a while, but not permanently because they will have their opportunity to repent. And mankind has been given an opportunity. Now most people are not taking advantage of it. <clears throat> and they will be given more opportunities. We're told in the book of Revelation that there will be two witnesses. Even during the period of the tribulation, who will be proclaiming the gospel from Jerusalem, and they will be known around the world. Their message will go out to the nations because they're going to be killed. Just prior to Christ's second coming, and the whole world, we're told, will rejoice at their deaths because the world hates the gospel. It's our, it's our job to preach the gospel to the world, but our message is not going to be accepted graciously by most people, and it's not. It is something that has been hated down through history. And those who have proclaimed that message have often paid with their lives for doing it. The time is coming when that message will be received much more graciously and accepted people will repent. Their sins will be covered. They will be given the gift of eternal life. And it says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. God will take away the rebuke of His people, Israel and other peoples peoples he created, the human beings he made to be a part of his family and his heritage. It will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The Feast of Trumpets has great and multifaceted meaning. The trumpet blasts mark the turning point in history when God finally takes full control and begins to rule over the earth. The result will be an end to war, to rampant injustice, disease, and all sorts of other evils. Peace will break out all over the earth. The nations will be healed as Christ establishes his government over mankind. This is the meaning and the hope pictured by the blowing of trumpets on this feast day.